You're listening to Give Me The Fear, the Britflix podcast Frightfest 2023 preview series. My name is Stuart Wright, and usually I host this show. But for this genre talent-filled build-up to the Woodstock Gore, I'm keeping stump. When this intro is done, this is the last you're going to hear from me until I ask you to tell your friends all about it. The spoiler-free interviews are brief, and across the entire series, you will discover the kind of knowledge and experience about how to make horror films that they just don't teach you at film school. Are you ready for that? After looking back at the blood, sweat and tears that went into their creative successes, I asked them one last question. If you could handpick one person to be in the audience, alive or dead, famous or personal to you, for your fright first screening, who would it be and why? I think you're going to love the answers this question elicits. I certainly do. That's my introduction over with. Let's hear from the talent. My name is John Rossman. I'm the writer and director of New Life. New Life is about a young woman on the run, um, and we don't know why she's running. And then there's someone assigned to kind of bring her in. And these two women's stories start to link in uh, interesting ways. And it all leads to the middle works. Uh, the film explodes open into a horror movie. I think something fun during the kind of pre-development script process uh, took place during scouting. Uh, the script, it, you know, a lot of personal kind of uh, fun and maddening uh, <laughs> insights while writing alone in your apartment. But uh, I, I really enjoyed in pre-production um, going with a producer who's also a Brit, uh, one of our producers and our cinematographer. And we did scouting throughout the state of Oregon. Um, our movies, a lot of it's a road movie, so it takes place in different landscapes. And so really drilling down those landscapes, what we wanted it to look like, where we wanted our characters to be at those certain points of the movie um, was important. But then, you know, that scouting process, us three really saw so much of the state. Uh, I worked as a journalist for about 10 years in Oregon. Uh, so, so I got to know the state pretty well. Um, but then being able to revisit it with people and the producer now lives in Oregon and him and I kind of putting our heads together of, of thinking of these cool places and then going out to like small towns under mountain landscapes and in the middle of the woods and then in the city and, you know, just hanging out um, and bonding and Airbnbs. It, it was really amazing um, and something that I think it, it, we did do serious work and I think it shows up in the picture in interesting ways. During filming the movie, uh, since we have these landscapes that are these big vistas, you're, you're kind of at the mercy of Mother Nature. And um, our film really culminates under like a, a, a big mountain, like a field at the foot of the big mountain. And it's it's cinematic. It's really great. And we wake up the day of and it's, the mountain has completely disappeared behind a curtain of fog. And so this budget's so tight. It's not like we can just be like, oh, we'll just wait out the weather. You know, there, there was a lot of conversation of like, do we try to stagger filming and 
do different scenes and not do that day. Because if you don't have that mountain in the background, then it's like, we could just film this in a field in Portland, Oregon. There's no reason why we're here. But we just decided to wait it out. No one was allowed to kind of like talk about the weather on set. So we're all there. Like everyone's like looking at the clouds, but no one's allowed to like talk about it. But it's slowly parting, parting, parting. And then when we're ready to film the scene, it's like, boom, right there. It, it all burned off. And uh, it's it's the biggest kind of emotional scene in the film. So, you know, that was exciting to film too. And then, you know, the movie gods took mercy on us, but it, it was so stressful. Uh, <laughs> it was intense. Um, I edited the film and uh, the, the editing process is long. And if you can imagine it, even more isolating than the writing process where you're looking at all your mistakes in real time and you're the, your worst critic and you're putting it together and it's, it's just this practice of thinking you've done the worst thing that has ever existed. And uh, why are you even trying? Um, But I I think something really great during that process is um, you reach a point where you realize that maybe it's not the worst thing you've ever done. And I think a real fond memory for me during the editing process was I reached a point where I finished the film, um, where I finished like one of the latest edits of the film. and, And I thought, you know what? Of course, there's going to be people people don't like it. There's going to be people who think, you know, I'm an idiot or I did something dumb in the story or whatever. But I don't think any person is going to watch this movie and think it's a complete piece of shit. And as soon as I reach that point where I'm like, if someone makes it to the end of this film, uh, you know, they may hate it, but they won't think it's a big piece of shit. Uh, That was a big relief for me. um, And it was a very exciting part of this journey. I think if if I could pick someone alive or dead to watch my film, I had an answer. Then you said personal, and I kind of feel like a jerk, not including like a family member who's passed away or something. So outside of that, outside of someone like personal, like I, I feel like, you know, I would, I would love, of course, you know, my grandparents to be their, you know, friends or something. Um, but outside of that, because they'll the hopefully be watching in some interdimensional space realm or something. I think... Uh, Someone I would love to have in the theater I, would be Kurt Vonnegut. Um, he's he's a writer. Uh, you know, I, I think he's a very famous American writer. But he uh, he's someone that I, I've really admired my whole life. And his kind of quasi-memoir, Men Without a Country, um, just really influenced the way, you know, I, I think I've thought about writing and I kind of think about the world. And, and I read that so many times in college. And it's such an important book to me. And he's just this ultimate humanist and and he's seen some of the atrocities of mankind and and he approaches his work after seeing that during World War II, still with humor, still with grace, still believing in the power of people. And and I find that really important and um, and, and influential to me. Um, And also he's really nice. So I feel like if he hated the movie, like he would still be like, I really like the jacket on that one character or something. Uh, and I think I think he'd be able to find a nice anecdote um, and we'd be able to have a nice conversation where we didn't talk about each other or our work and he would probably say something really cool. Um, so, Kurt Vonnegut. My name is Tony Reams and my role in the movie is director. It's my first time directing a feature film so this might be my one and only i guess we'll see 
And the movie I directed is called Spooked. The movie Spooked is a sort of a paranormal ghost story about a small town um, in Western Pennsylvania. It's a compila compilation of myths and legends and things that we all grew up with and sort of how they all come together and collide in this small town. And it's the, the small town is the town where I was raised in Western Pennsylvania. So um, it's very near and dear to me. Pre-production for Spooked was a very, very fun, long, arduous process. Tori Haas, who wrote the script, and I started um, years ago, probably three years ago. And um, one of the first things we did was I would just send him, hey, here's some news clippings from things that happened in my town. Here's some um, events that happened. We would share different pieces of information and he would sort of bring in stuff from his experiences, even though he didn't grow up in Greenville. I feel like everybody sort of has that childhood where we're all fascinated by, you know, mythology, lore, um, you know, dark themes. And uh, one of the funny things was I would keep sending him things. And there were a couple stories that I would send him. And he was like, no one would believe this if we put this in a movie. You know, some of these things are just so crazy. And it got us talking, and it's sort of a thing that I still am wondering about is, is my hometown kind of just an outlier and weird that all of these crazy things happen in a town of like 3,500 people? Or once you sort of start really rooting in and digging, does everyone sort of have these events and we're sort of either shielded from them or, um, you know, sort of they just get pushed down like, oh, we're, we're just not going to talk about that happening. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. So that was the fun times for us. I brought up a couple things and I will send people links like, hey, here's something that happened in my hometown. Here's a funny story. And I think I'm still sort of on the, the edge of people think I'm either making it up or embellishing it, which I probably am because as a kid, you sort of like have these fantastical things. But when I send them newspaper clippings, people are like, this is bonkers. Like two of my classmates. Um, are both in prison for murder. Three of them, actually, just three of them. And it's, I mean, I'm in a class of 120 people. So it's not like a big class. So I live in Atlanta, Georgia, which is about 12 hours south of Greenville, Pennsylvania, which is where we, we filmed in both. So all interiors were done in Georgia. All exteriors were done in Greenville. And you sort of merge them together. And a lot of people don't, hopefully can't tell that we're all over the place when we're filming. But I would say um, probably the fondest memory I have is finish the film, locked, done. Um, so I show it to a couple of my buddies and uh, one of my good friends, Greg Bishop, who's a really acclaimed director. Um, he's like, hey, man, I think you're missing something. And, I, you know, you don't want to hear that. Right. And he's like, you need an opening. You don't have an opening to this movie. He's like, it just all hits too fast. You need to have people give them time to settle with their popcorn and their drinks if they're seeing it in a theater. This isn't a short film where you hit them like right over the head with it. You got to give them time. You got to open it. And so I was like, ooh, you know, that's a little that's a little tough to hear. So um, I took Quinn, who plays Flora, um, my daughter and my son, Chris, who's not in the film, back up to Greenville and the Three of us with my mom went out 
on a day. And with the help of my sister in the community, we filmed this opening all over town and um, really got some great stuff. So I bring it back and I cut it together and I show it to my wife and she's like, well, I think this is better than the whole movie. And I was like, you know, <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad, but okay. And then I show it to Greg and he's like, that's exactly what it needed. So it was sort of like this out of nervousness and out of like, oh boy, I thought we were done. Came this really wonderful thing that um, just opens the film and it stars my son. And he's, he's at an age where I did the exact same thing at that age that he was doing in Greenville. So just this wonderful, we filmed all over the towns, so all these memories and places. So it was really like from the worst, you know, news you could hear to like the best outcome. That was like my favorite thing. Okay. So another <laughs> bad to good situation was um, we were super lucky um, during post-production. I was able to screen spooked at the renegade film festival was a very like locked off closed not advertised we're just going to do a secret screening and that allowed us to bring in some people and anyone who was at the fest and some people that i didn't know specifically that were like hey you want to you want to check out this thing and it the sort of like when i did a little introduction for it was like or i think it was at the end but i basically said you know we're maybe 80 percent done with this but if you have any good feedback or notes please don't be afraid to send them to me because I really am interested to get like, so you, it was sort of like a, like they do when they do test audience runs on, on big films. Like we had no money. So this was just a super blessing. So we're in post show the film. And one of my friends, Chris Etheridge is like, Hey man, I got a note for you. And I was like, okay. And he's like, I think it's easy, but I don't know. And, uh, he, he so he tells me the note and he's like your scene doesn't work and i was like okay he's like here's how you fix it and then michael j epstein who i didn't know before hit me up on a private message he's like hey man saw your film talk to chris your scene doesn't work right so he's like gives me these notes brilliant note right and and the thing is it was one of those i believe it was it was written one way shot pretty close to the way it was written but I feel like um... Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Force for the trees, we kind of got lost in it a little bit. So they were able to look at it with fresh eyes and they both had the same note. And literally, like, it changes the impact of an entire, the entire third act, I think, benefited from their note. And it was one of those things where it was like, 
again, where, you know, you think you're on going down one track and they sort of not derail you, but are like, Hey buddy, think about this. And, um, and I'm just so lucky that we got, you know, we're able to show it to people and get like that kind of feedback where it was like, I think you can fix this. Here's a good fix from some very smart filmmakers who were like, just trying to help. And I was like, I'm forever grateful. Like it was just a great, great process. One of my best friend who really helped with the film, his name's Tim Hoffman. And um, I think Vanessa posted that question to like me and Tim and Tim's like, I already know what he's going to say. Right. He, I've known Tim. I went to preschool with Tim in Greenville. Right. And then he's in Colorado. I'm in Atlanta, but we both went back to Greenville. He helped with the film immeasurable help. Um, but he's like, I know what he's going to say. So my dad, right. My dad passed away when I was like 14, I think. And um, he's the one that sort of got me started with, you know, an old eight millimeter camera, things like that. He was real into film, really creative, really. Um, he showed me motel hell. He showed me um, nightmare on Elm street. Like a lot of like the, you know, big movies as a child that I really like left a mark. And um so it would be like, I would just love to see him, you know, back with me, like, because this might be it. This might be the last thing I ever do. I don't know this. Uh, I may be done directing after this. We'll see. But I just wanted him there to see like, hey, we did something right. And it's going to play at Fright Fest, which I mean, to me, that's a really that's a huge deal. And so just being able to premiere at Fright Fest, um, I don't know, it really it really is like not full circle, but it is like the, the big bookends to everything. And one thing that nobody knows about the film is literally the first words spoken in Spooked are um, my dad. And it's from a cassette tape I found from 1974 when I was just a couple months old and he's talking to my grandma and grandpa. And so if you listen to the very first thing when Chris puts on his headphones at the very opening, the first voice you hear is my dad. Hi guys, I'm Devani Penn and uh, I am the director, uh, story writer and producer of The Black Mass. Uh, so Black Mass is a true crime story about America's most infamous serial killer. In 1978, there were um, some more prolific crimes, more, more publicized crimes that were committed. And this is literally a day in the life uh, of this serial killer. We follow him um, in his footsteps over his shoulder. So you as an audience can witness the experience of what this individual did, how he impacted the world around him, um, you get to learn about his victims, something that has not been portrayed in the media before. And we really bring uh, humanity and realism to uh, something that has become almost pop culture. So my goal with this movie was to um, make people human, to give you a human experience to true crime and hopefully change the perspective of uh, notoriety that we lend to criminals, the celebrity that we lend to serial killers, and hopefully change the focus to the people who are impacted by those crimes. This was a really unique project. Um, I work primarily in horror. I have a lot of experience doing that. But this was a special experience because you're not only telling um, a really intense story, you're telling real people's story. So. Um, 
with this approach, we had to be able to tell the events of the day and what everyone was doing, seeing, and you had to get to learn about these people and care about them in a very short amount of time. But we had the additional challenge, because I don't like to do anything easy, um, of we really, according to the format that we were going after, of we only experience his day. We had to see, experience, learn, hear, um, witness events that were going to push the overall story and an arc forward. But it had to be things that our, the man at the center of our story, the serial killer, would have witnessed. So how do you tell a story um, about victims, about these women who are, who are living their day-to-day lives and get to love them and care about them and, and want to see this journey through with them from someone who is a narcissistic sociopath who's really only there in brief moments for sexual gratification. So it was balancing two very, very different agendas with the overall goal of telling a complete story in a 24-hour period, all based on courtroom witness testimony. So we had so many parameters with which to work. It was really like playing Tetris. Um, I was pulling my hair out for months and months and months. I had studied the the crimes and the story uh, for almost a decade prior. So it was just fitting in all the pieces. Um, there was a lot of things about these women that I really wanted to showcase more of um, that isn't highly publicized, really some incredible people, incredible things, but it didn't fit in the context of something that he would have experienced or witnessed or heard. So um, it was it was really a fine dance in this particular script phase. So um, I literally, like I made maps and grids with my screenwriters. Um, we were morning, noon, and night watching um, the documentaries, interviews with the victims, the surviving victims over the years to see, you know, additional details that hadn't been portrayed before, things that were said, things they did that day. And like, so just tons and tons and tons of prep work. Whereas usually when, um, when we're in the scripting phase, like horror is formulatic, right? So I, I've done so much of it now. I can really like knock out a story or, or a script in like a couple of weeks. And and it's satisfactory to to all the wants and needs. I really just know how to how to nail that in. But this, you kind of from beginning to end of the process for this particular film, um, I had some really prolific talent in front of him and behind the camera on it, and everyone was like challenged by it because you had to kind of throw out everything that you normally do and everything you normally know um, in order to make this unique approach work. I think overall the biggest challenge for this. I mean, probably a lot of people will say a similar thing. It, it was the budget restrictions. So I knew what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. Um, but this particular movie, you know, you really, because it's set in reality, even if it's um, from a very skewed lens, um, in order to have the impact that it really needed to have, to have people have conversations about victim advocacy, which is my goal with this movie, it couldn't be in a state of fantasy. Sometimes in, in horror, which is one of my favorite things about it, you can work with budget restrictions because you just think outside the box and get creative and, and you can suspend reality a little bit and it doesn't really detract from the viewing experience. Um, if anything, horror fans love that shit, stuff. Horror fans really, if anything, horror fans really love it. So um, 
that's how in the past, if I've had a budget restriction, I've kind of gotten around it. But on this, you know, a period piece, 1978, it's not cheap to recreate. Um, we had, you know, everything in the frame had to be not only from the air, but had to be authentic or else um, it takes you out of the experience of this really happened. And so um, with the budget constraints, recreating um, several different scenarios, scenes, um, places, there's a lot of driving um, in this. So we had, you know, picture vehicles. There was just a lot of things, even in more contained 24-hour story that we really had to um, bring to life. And so um, getting that right was was a big challenge. I mean, I was literally, me and like half my team were visiting thrift stores like every single day. <laughs> I, was, I was on Facebook Marketplace looking for authentic, uh, authentic pieces to, to pull. So it really was built with full indie spirit um, to make it work on the level that it, it does. Um, but as probably everybody on here will tell you, I would have loved a little bit more money. <laughs> so given the scripting process being so unique, um, and then, of course, the filming experience of it um, was challenging, but but unique as well, because um, since it's from the perspective of our main character, we never flip the world. Um, all of the the footage, all of the things that we captured were from one side only, only things that he would he would see or hear. And so when we went to the edit, that was a unique experience too, a unique attempt. Normally, there is a formula and a very, very um, simple way to edit a scene. You know, you have master, memes, close-ups, you know, the forwards and back coverage and then you know you can build the scene from there if need be and on this we didn't have half of the footage that you normally would and so it was a little bit of a challenge to still make it feel like a cinematic experience as well as a day in the life um stepping into someone's shoes so that was a little bit wonky kind of getting used to that and then i kind of because I, this is my directorial debut, it's, you know, I, I work primarily in front of the camera. And so when I, when I approached this, I saw the whole movie as a finished film first. And then the reality of shooting it, the budget constraints, a few, few things challenged along the way. When we got to the edit room, it didn't match exactly in my head uh, what I had started with. And so being a new director, there was a challenge of how to tell the story that I very, very specifically wanted to tell um, with what I had to do it with. So there was some trial and error. For for example, um, for me, I really love Wonners, um, which is basically um, a scene playing out in just one shot or um, an extended period of, of things happening in just one shot. And I really, really played that up in this movie um, to hopefully enhance the experience of your spending a day in someone's shoes with some of the time constraints we had with shooting and um, some of the challenges with that I was not able to get as many of those as possible so then it became where were there natural places to cut or transition um, into the next piece that felt organic to the story and its formula um, and didn't take away from that day in the life feeling if I could have anyone alive or dead in my screening for Fright Fest, 
Um, the deceased person that I would like to be in the audience is our serial killer himself. I want him to see what I'm doing with his legacy. And I want him to know that it will hopefully no longer be his, it will be his victims. And if I can have one alive person in my screening, I hope it's Paul from Fry Fest because meeting him at Con, um, I really got to know and love him and the team and um, really he helped me embrace the festival circuit, something that I really hadn't done prior. Um, I was more of a girl, went straight to distribution and targeted that business side. So uh, I am learning in real time all about um, the value that being part of the community and the festival circuit lends itself to. And Paul was um, crucial in that process and also me being able to play Fright Fest, which I'm truly grateful for. And so I hope... I hope, hope, hope. I know he's going to be busy, but I hope that he'll join for the screening because that would be special. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with at least one friend. Put a link out on social media, rate and review it for your preferred podcast platform. Put an ad in Lou, Novel the Town Crier, whisper in the ear of the town gossip. You get the picture. It all helps bring new people into the Britflix podcast form. Thank you. MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.